I want to turn our attention right now to a fascinating new book, which in some ways is about Canada's coming of age. You know, the 1960s were an important decade for Canada. I mean, we celebrated our centennial, got ourselves a, a new flag, but it was kind of a coming of age in, in a lot of ways. It was also a period in which the boomers came of age. Right? Those who were born in the aftermath of the Second World War, born to parents who lived through that war and who themselves uh, emerged, of course, uh, in the Great Depression in that era uh, of, the, uh, of the 1930s and before. Uh, and more specifically, it was a coming of age for Class 9G at Etobicoke Collegiate Institute. Uh, Ken Dryden was one of those students, and almost 60 years later... Ken Dryden sought out his classmates to see how they are, what life has been like, and what Canada has become over all of these years. So he tells the story in a new book. It's called The Class, a memoir of a place, a time, and us. Ken Dryden, of course, member of the Hockey Hall of Fame, a member of uh, Team Canada 1972 Summit Series. He's a member of the Canadian Sports Hall of Fame, a former member of Parliament and Cabinet Minister, and the author, author of several books, including his latest. The class Ken Dryden is also going to be uh, here in Calgary, uh, part of WordFest, October 24th, 7 p.m., Memorial Park Library. More details at wordfest.com. Ken Dryden on the line with us here this afternoon. Ken, great to have you with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks a lot. Thanks, Rob. So let's talk about the idea for this book. And this is something you, you've been working on now, I guess, or had been working on for more than three years. But where did the idea come from that you wanted to go back and reconnect with these uh, 35, or I guess 34 uh, of your classmates from, from the early 60s? Yeah. Well, it's, it's, I, I wanted to find out what happened to all of us. And, and knowing that in my own life, um, nothing really went as I imagined it would go um, mm-hmm. um, from high school on. And from from friends that I have and other family members, um, it's pretty much the same that, that um, you know, where we thought we would be coming out of high school and where we ended up 30 years later were two entirely different stories. And so I wanted to find out. Um, and and first, it was as you set out um, of trying to find everybody, and 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 we weren't a class that stayed much in contact. Uh, there were a couple of people who were friends that remained friends, but for the most part, we either didn't see each other at all, or it was kind of random, accidental, bumping into each other at a street or on the street or at an event, and um, and so in almost every case. It was uh, kind of trying to pick up um, the story from from then, and in many ways, and again, as you set up in your in your opening, of of going back um, to talk to them about their parents because we didn't know much even about our own parents yeah. when we were at that age, and we certainly didn't know about um, others uh, other parents and. Um, and then it only later on that we would come to understand the the effects that that uh, um, that growing up in a certain way would have on us. So it was just this you know, trying to find out, and 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 really this question that I think virtually all of us ask ourselves many times in our lives: is How the heck did we get from there <laughs> to here? 
And that's really what it was about. Yeah, I think there's there's definitely something universal about that. Uh, so the 35 of you, you basically all stayed together through, throughout high school. And I mean, you know, a lot of people have gone through the experience of being in high school with, you know, hundreds or even, you know, over a thousand students. But this was a pretty small group. Yeah, I mean, the school itself was, I think, 1,100 when we started. And then it, it expanded to about 1,600 uh, by the time we had graduated. Um, but with very few exceptions, this 35 stayed together. There were a, a couple of kids that moved out of the area. A couple of others moved into regular classrooms at, at the same high school. And a couple of others moved into the class. But probably around 30 or so were there from the first day of grade 9 to the final uh, day and final exam of, of grade 13. And and uh, and so it is. I mean, you see each other pretty much 200 days a year. And, yeah. and, 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 and we were all in the same classes. Well, with very, again, very few exceptions. There was an, an option of taking either art or music. So some of us took art, some took music. There was an option later on of, of taking a third language. I mean, we, we took English, or we took English, French, and Latin, but then uh, uh, we also had the choice of either German or Russian. So again, you know, there, there would be um, uh, a divide in the classes. But otherwise, in, in our English classes, French classes, history, physics, chemistry, biology, all the you know, we were all together. You were obviously playing hockey at the time. Did that make you uh, unique, or or what was the um, you know what was the interest in in the game at that time? Yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I was I was a kid. I, I loved yeah. to play. I mean, I I wanted to play. I had an older brother, you know, who who played. I wanted to do everything that he did. Um, you know, most of the other boys and you know, that I would have grown up with, uh, neighbors and and kids in our class. They played as well, and and uh, um, but it was it was also a time, and 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 of where the the, the image of what um, you know your your parents wanted you to be and what um, you know kind of the larger world wanted of you was to be an all rounder, uh, and the all rounder meant that you were a good all round student and you were a good all around um um you know really athlete i mean because there were there, there weren't a huge number of options um of of what other activities to be involved in it wasn't like it is today where you know where you know many other sports that you might choose to pursue rather than hockey many other activities outside of sports that you might and whether it's dance or music or some other form of the arts or or some other um uh, technology interest that you might have and and uh, but the image was of the all-rounder i mean that's that's what our parents wanted us to be and essentially you know what they were saying to us uh, and and why this image was there and the image was there through the school system as well is that if if you experience all of these things and if you show that you can learn in all these kinds of ways then you are ready for the rest of your life um, with the the kinds of learnings that will be presented to you the the challenges that will be there the things that you don't understand you know the needing to find 
different ways of, of, of coming to learn and, and, and figure things out. You have had all of these different experiences. And, and, uh, um, and, and, and so that, you know, it, it was not to create the, the great star, either the great, you know, uh, math star or the great hockey star. It was, if, it, if anything, to create the great kid uh, yeah. that, you know, that uh, with, with all these interests. Right, and it's interesting, and it, it seems to be a commonality in, in all of these stories of all of your classmates and that background and what, what parents had lived through and this sort of generational change that's occurring in the 1960s, right? And, you know, for, for parents yeah. who had uh, come up through the Depression, lived through the Second World War, you know, this, this new world, these new opportunities that, that were there was really an interesting moment in time. It, it was. I mean, and, and that's the... And again, trying to 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 put us into the context of that, um, that that almost all of us were born in 1947. A few were born in 1946. So even though we are described as baby boomers, really what much more defined us was that we were post-war kids. Yeah. And 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 prior to the time that we were born, there was six years of. Of, of war, and before that, it was pretty much a decade of depression, and and those were times when our own parents were, you know, were, were living through their early formative years. Our, our our parents were born during the 1910s, you know, that 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 you know a few a little um, before, a few a little afterwards, but mostly in the 1910s, where their own families were affected by the first world war some of their families affected by by the flu epidemic my 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 grandfather on my mother's side died in the flu epidemic and and my mother was raised by my grandmother um uh, and my grandmother was a single parent um but then you know that our parents were then when the when the depression came along they were either uh, just entering the workplace or finishing their school years and then and, and entering into this defining time where there were very few possibilities. We were trying to survive, trying to hold things together during that decade when normally, you know, of, when you were of that age, you were starting to really make your mark. Then the war hits. And so again, your future is is being put on hold, and and uh, and so finally the war ends, and 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 the soldiers return, and 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 the young adults, our parents of that time, yeah. are looking to make up for lost time. You know that they they need to race into their family years. They need to r- rush into their careers, and 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 but in a country. Where there are all these possibilities, that that you know that, that much of the rest of the world is in disarray. Europe is almost entirely in disarray because of of, of the war. Uh, a lot of other parts of the world, because of the uh, of the breakup of empires, with the uh, again the, you know, the, the disarray of the of of, of the empire makers. Uh, you've got all of these newly independent countries, or about to become newly independent. But the U.S. was ready to soar, and Canada, to a lesser extent because of our size, was ready to soar as well. But but the question was, of course, soar in what direction? Yeah. 
to yeah. become what? And 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 that was the that was the environment in which our our parents were moving into their main adult years and into their parental years and 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 of us you know uh, growing up as kids. So the process of, of tracking down your classmates and to get their perspective on, on all of this. Now you embarked on this right before the pandemic hit which I, I guess once that happened might have given you more time to do this, but makes uh, other things, other aspects uh, more complicated, I would imagine. So just, you know, what that was like, almost emotionally reconnecting with some of these people and how difficult that it proved to be to do so. Yeah. Well, it, it again, because we, we were not much in contact with each other in all the decades since high school, that it wasn't easy um or it certainly didn't seem like it was going to be easy and one of the complications of course is that is that many of the uh, of the girls the women in our high school class in getting married changed their last names to their to their husband's names and so to try to track them down um uh, in that way but there there were a, a couple of people who I, uh, I i knew where i could find them and there was one in particular who I thought, if anybody has a list of, of some of our classmates and maybe with some addresses or phone numbers, it would be her. And I contacted her. And she had a list of about maybe 13 or 14 names. And as I followed up on them, um, maybe half or a little bit more were still active um, uh, numbers. And so then once you... Once you're, you know, you've got six or seven people, then, then surely a couple of them have names or leads on a couple more, and then they have on a couple more, and then gradually the list grows, and and so in the end, it, as it turned out, of the 35, I found 34, I, and and I never could find this this one girl who had been in our class. Um, six of the 35 had passed away, hmm. uh, but I found, the, I found family members of five of the six. And, uh, and so then, you know, the, then, then and, and at the beginning, I wasn't completely sure that this was going to work, but I knew that it was only going to work if not only, you know, the, my classmates were interested, they had to be enthusiastic because this was going to be, this, this was going to take a while and, and it wasn't going to be easy in a lot of ways that we couldn't anticipate at the beginning. And, uh, and so probably for the first month and a half or so in talking to more and more, it was with an, an open question of where I was saying to them, I'm not sure I, I want to go ahead, and, but I want to know whether you want to go ahead. And then by the time, you know, that time had passed and there were about 15 that seemed to be really enthusiastic, then, then I sort of said to everybody, okay, yeah, let's go. Yeah. And then found more and more as, as time went on. But again, neither, none of us knew what we were getting ourselves in for. I mean, I, I thought we'd talk you know, two or three hours about you know, high school years, a little bit about their years before, and then a lot about their years afterwards, and that would be it. But as you get into conversations like this, and when you're puzzling through really your, your life and, 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 and all of these you know, questions, 
then the conversations go on and they go on. And I think in the end, probably on average, I spoke to uh, each person and it was always one-on-one before between 12 and 14 hours and over a period of a couple of years. And it just, again, it just gets, as, as happens in conversation, the more into it you are, the more you want to get into it, the more interesting it becomes, the more challenging it becomes, the more intense it becomes, but at the same time, the more meaningful it becomes. Absolutely. Well, the book is called The Class, A Memoir of a Place, Time, and Us. You're going to be here in Calgary next week, uh, Tuesday night, October 24th, the Memorial Park Library. More details at wordfest.com. Ken Dryden, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Rob. All the best. Take care. Uh, there you go. That is uh, Ken Dryden, Hockey Hall of Fame member, of course, uh, best-selling author. His latest, it's called The Class, A Memoir of a Place, Time, and Us. A story about him, a story of his classmates, but also a story of a period in time and a real coming of age uh, decade for, for this country, not just these, these young high schoolers. The uh, infamous Mount Vesuvius volcano in the year 79, or I guess that's far back enough that we would say 79 A.D., caused a massive amount of destruction, maybe most famously in the city of Pompeii. Uh, Another city, Herculaneum, was not spared. In fact, that blast uh, took what was basically a library in that city at the time and burned hundreds of important scrolls. Here we are almost 2,000 years later, and we're finally now getting a glimpse of what those scrolls say. And our first step in that direction is thanks to a 21-year-old computer science student named Luke Ferreter, who heard about a worldwide competition to translate these scrolls, to recover what's contained within them. As the Washington Post describes it, the 21-year-old computer science major developed an artificial intelligence program to detect the charred Greek letters written on papyrus. Uh, He was at a party in August when he received a text. The text message he received included an image from one of the scrolls. Ferreter sat down in a corner to review the picture and uploaded it to his AI program before returning to the party. When walking back to his dorm room around 1 a.m., he pulled out his phone and was shocked at what he saw. His AI program had detected about a dozen letters from the image. The Vesuvius challenge uh, is that, that, that competition trying to to employ different expertise to help solve this mystery. The Vesuvius Challenge has awarded uh, Ferreter $40,000 for his discovery. So joining us to talk a bit more about this breakthrough, more on the significance of these scrolls and what the Vesuvius Challenge is all about, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dr. Brent Seals, who is one of the creators of the Vesuvius Challenge. He's a principal investigator. Uh, you can read more at scrollprize.org. He's also director of the Digital Restoration Initiative and an alumni professor of computer science at the University of Kentucky, Dr. Seals. So great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you. It's a real pleasure to join you. Uh, and this is an exciting announcement, but let's get a bit more of the background here. So this volcano, as mentioned, causes all this destruction in 79. Uh, what were these scrolls then that were caught up in this? The scrolls came from a library in the Villa of the Papyri, which was part of a uh, a town on the shore of the Bay of Naples. And it sat at the foot of Mount Vesuvius. 
and um, was involved in the same eruption, obviously, that also overcame Pompeii. Mm -hmm. When were these scrolls discovered then? The scrolls actually were completely inundated and uh, destroyed by the uh, explosion in AD 79, and, and the site was not discovered again until uh, 1750, 1752, when some well diggers basically came uh, in their tunneling upon a, a beautiful mosaic Roman floor. And then the subsequent archaeology that occurred uh, revealed again the Villa of the Papyri. Uh, so we've had them since uh, 1750, but uh, clearly they are in a delicate state. So the, the, the option of unscrolling them, trying to read them, that was never really an option, was it? Well, it, it was an option for those who discovered them. They, they began the process of trying their oh. best to open them with the methods of the day. Uh, but mostly what they did is they created a fragmentary witness. Some of the scrolls were able to be partially unrolled, um, but most of them... Um, and there are many, many that were attempted, uh, but most of them are, are fragmentary and give us a difficult time at putting together the actual works, you know, in terms of complete books. What do we know, though, about the, the significance of these scrolls, to whom they belonged, etc.? The scrolls were part of a private library. The father-in-law of Julius Caesar is thought to be the, the owner of, of the uh, the villa itself. It's part of a, wow. a town at Herculaneum. Um, so it was deeply intellectual and Roman and, uh, of course, you know, um, a wealthy patron. What about your own involvement and, I guess, your own fascination with these uh, scrolls? How did you get involved in this? Well, you know, I'm not a historian or a classicist. I'm actually a computer scientist. And, and you know, my interest from the beginning has been in the technical problem mm -hmm. of figuring out a way to use technology to extract more uh, from these damaged materials than than you can really get with either a physical examination or you know the naked eye. So, at what point were you convinced, or were you convinced all along that that we would be able to, at some point uh, through technology, be able to to read these scrolls? Was that belief always there, or you know was was that an open question? Well, in fact, I had already worked on the techniques, the technical side, before I even knew about the existence of the Herculaneum Scrolls. It was a pretty esoteric uh, library for uh, a computer scientist uh, to be familiar with. Um, but when I became interested in them in 2005 and I saw them for the first time, I, I instantly knew that it would be possible to do and that um, I wanted to be the one to try to do it. So the Vesuvius challenge, uh, that's where this enters in. So what was the idea, the thinking behind the Vesuvius challenge? Well, we worked a long time to develop a technical framework that would allow us to basically virtually unwrap and read everything inside these scrolls. And we've shown along the way uh, the power of virtual unwrapping and the power of this tomographic imaging that we use as the basis for that. The Vesuvius challenge was a, an incredible opportunity that we had to be able to team up with uh, Nat Friedman and Daniel Gross, who are uh, Silicon Valley entrepreneurs, and to form a contest around um, really doing the work of getting across the finish line to read the interior wraps of the scrolls that we had scanned. 
Uh, which brings us to, to the big announcement here this month. And it's quite a wild story because uh, the first recipient of one of these prizes, he's a uh, you know, pretty young student, uh, a college student, 21 years old, a computer science major. And I guess he this all kind of started for him. He got a text message at a party uh, about uh, maybe trying to, to do something here. Uh, tell us a bit more about this young Luke Ferreter and how he now fits into the story. Well, yeah, I don't want to channel Ronald Reagan and say I, I hold, you know, Luke's youth and inexperience <laughs> against him. But um, I'm so grateful that we have developed a community of people like Luke. I mean, he's an incredibly intelligent and accomplished person. He's 21 years old, you know, and he jumped into the competition and he worked really, really hard. And I mean, I think he had the discovery of his life so far, which is that he submitted an AI job and he ran it on one of the wraps from inside. And lo and behold, words from the ancient Greeks popped out. I mean, isn't that exciting, right? Yeah, it's it's pretty wild. And it's it, it appears to be a, a significant word. Uh, tell us a bit more about, I guess this would be the ancient Greek word for purple that's been revealed. Yeah, well, first of all, you know, it is one word, but it's the beginning of us reading the story. So there are other words that are coming out. Um, yeah. The prize was for the first person who could crack the code enough for us to read one word, and he did that. And it's this word porphuras, which is purple. And without context, it's really, really hard to say, you know, what that's referring to. Um, but, you know, it's known in the ancient world that this expensive dye was used for Roman robes and to indicate wealth and, uh, and accomplishment. And maybe it's referring to that. We're mm -hmm. not sure. But this kind of this this unlocks something, though, doesn't it? It's, it's hugely important first step. Oh, it's incredibly important. Yeah, it's like when you pop the top on a drink and you're going to take the first sip. I mean, there's more in there and we're going to pour it out, but the first sip's the best, right? I mean, that's yeah. uh, where we are. So where, where next? Where does this go from here? Well, you know, the competition is active and this was a prize uh, offered along the way. The grand prize is actually $700,000. It's a significant uh, sum. Um, and so we have uh, lots of competitors trying to meet the deadline that we've set, which is the end of the calendar year. And again, I'm grateful to Nat Friedman and and uh, Daniel Gross for being able to help us raise the money to be able to offer such a significant prize. In winning that prize, competitors will have to reveal four passages of 140 characters each. And that's going to be a significant amount of text. And it could still be young Luke. I mean, I understand he's going to use some of that $40,000 that he received to buy more computers, maybe try to to win a little bit more here. Well, I'll tell you, you, Luke and Yousef, who also was the second place uh, competitor, uh, you know, I, I would put my money on them. <laughs> you know, they are uh, they are doing the job. So um, they're both highly motivated and incredibly talented people. And it's a real pleasure that we've been able to become in contact with them and so many other brilliant people working on this problem. As you mentioned earlier, I mean, you're not a historian, and we, we don't often think of history and computer science overlapping at all. And I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. Did you expect it would take you down this path? I mean, what does this tell us about how, you know, this kind of technology can be used to, you know, help answer these, these big questions from our past? Well, I didn't know initially as a graduate student, you know, in school, where my imaging and computer vision specialty would take me. But uh, you know, imaging is central to so many different things now. Mm -hmm. And, you know, autonomous vehicles. And I came through the digital library path 
putting things on a digital library requires making them digital and that's imaging. So that that path sucked me in. But I think the biggest thing was that I actually saw some of these artifacts. And I don't know if yeah. you've been in the same room with something that's 2000 years old, or <laughs> if you've looked at a medieval decorated manuscript, or you've seen, for example, the Beowulf manuscript, but these things are, um, they have glory all their own, right? All right, and you've been involved in, in other projects. I understand you were involved in in applying this approach to some some Dead Sea Scrolls. Yes, I mean it was just a wonderful opportunity to work with the Israel Antiquities Authority and in particular Panina Shore, and we revealed the text inside of one of the scrolls they had in their collection using similar techniques, and it turned out to be an early, very early copy of the Book of Leviticus written in Hebrew. Wow. Well, in the meantime, as you say, still some some uh, money up for grabs here. Scrollprize.org. If anyone wants to read more about uh, this whole project, or if anyone out there thinks they maybe can contribute something, uh, scrollprize.org. We'll leave it there for now. Dr. Seals, thank you so much for making some time for us here today. Really appreciate this. Thank you very much. Another school year is underway, and as we go through the school year, things will arise at school. You hope that they don't, but they often do, where the school needs to contact you. And again, maybe it's just a case of, you know, your kid's not feeling well, needs to go home, or something else happened, whatever. So the school has your contact information. So who do they contact? If there's mom and dad and the contact information is there, who gets the call? Now, oftentimes, you're supposed to stipulate who should be called first. Uh, this is a story in the Globe and Mail today. Uh, Tara Klein, who's a legal assistant uh, in Winnipeg, says, they always call me first, even though we fill out the forms every single year, and Dad is the, always the number one contact. Now, this is a story about some recent research that attempts to get to the bottom of that. Is it true that mothers are called by schools or more likely to be called by schools than fathers. And why is that? So the study finds that indeed that's the case, that mothers are far more likely to be called than fathers. Now, what's interesting, even in situations where parents stipulate who should be called first, there's still a tendency to call the mother. If it's stipulated that the father should be contacted first, still about a 25% of the time, mothers are contacted first. When it's the reverse, and it's stipulated that the mom should be called first, that happens more than 90% of the time. So less than 10% would the calls would be going to dad. So again, what, what's driving that? What kind of assumptions are behind that? Is it assumptions about mother and father roles? Is it assumptions about men and women and their workday? What they're doing between those, those school hours? Well, joining us to talk more about these findings, the implications uh, of it, uh, very pleased to welcome in the program here this afternoon, one of the authors uh, of this study, Laura G, is an associate professor of economics at Tufts University. Professor G, great to have you with us here. Welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Uh, so first of all, what, what sparked your interest in, in this question? Uh, so, you know, this is a paper that has been born of my own personal angst, I think. Mm -hmm. okay. um, I, along with my co-author, Olaf's daughter, um, her and I are, have, are economists and, and often just chatted with each other professionally. And at some point, we started sending each other just sort of screenshots of messages we'd get of basically us getting called when we are traveling internationally to give talks or when we were, you know, teaching class 
And we're like, why is my male partner never getting these calls? Right. So that was sort of the the, uh, the inspiration. <laughs> yeah. So how do you go about answering a question like this then? Sure. So, you know, at first, her and I just spoke a little bit about does this problem exist just for us or does it exist all over the place? Mm-hmm. And then we thought about understanding a little bit more about why it exists. So we added a third co-author, Christy Bazard, and asked her to help us think about how we could tease out the mechanisms for why it's happening. And then the three of us decided what would be best is to write down a economics theoretical model and then test that model on real world people who decide whether or not to call parents. So what we decided to do was we um, were all in the U.S., so we decided to start in the U.S. context. We got um, a bunch of emails for U.S. principals, and we decided what we would do is we would email these principals posing as a two-parent heterosexual household, and we would give them a phone number for a male-sounding name and a phone number for a female-sounding name, and we'd randomize which one was written first, and pretty much then we just saw who they called more. (laughs) Interesting. And so what did that reveal? Uh, So somewhat, maybe uh, not very surprisingly, it revealed that when there's no signal about who to call more, they call the mothers about 1.4 times more often than they call the fathers. And, you know, in in the context of this kind of research, that seems like a a statistically significant difference. That is. Yep. Yes. You are correct. Okay. Um, So I guess the question then is, well, why would that be? Yes. So, you know, one thing that economists often say is that we have this sort of unsavory term for what we call statistical discrimination. So this would be the idea that in the U.S. at least, you know, female parents are more likely to be stay at home parents than male parents. And so if you as a school decision maker or, you know, maybe a decision maker in a different context, like a doctor or a dentist or a daycare provider, If you're trying to think which parent to call, if you don't know who to call, on average, you're probably more likely to get a mother who's available than a father. So to try to get it, if that was what's driving this sort of initial finding that moms get called more than dads, we varied, um, we sent out a different group of principles, a message slightly different, where we signaled which parent was more available. We either said the mother was highly available or the father was highly available, or that the mother was not very available or the father was not very available. Uh, when we send those types of messages, good news is they push people in the right direction. So if you say a parent is more available, they will call that parent more than they did when they didn't have that information. Mm-hmm. However, it's still a little lopsided. So, for instance, if you say that the father is very available, then about 75% of the calls go to him, but still 25% of the <laughs> calls go to the mother. Yeah. If, on the other hand, you say the mother's very available, 90% of the calls go to her and only 10% go to the father. And so you think then that comes from an assumption, even when it's specified, still that assumption is there that the father is just going to be busier than the mother. Or maybe it's something else, right? So it could, I think in some ways, sending out these messages about availability tell us that availability is not driving all of what we're seeing, that something else, some other deterrence to calling male parents exists. And that could be something around gender norms. So it might be, we did a survey of a bunch of decision makers who interact with parents and sort of, you know, anecdotally, we saw a lot of the responses saying those people said self-reported they wanted to call mothers more than fathers because they thought mothers would be more knowledgeable about a child's needs, that they're more pleasant to interact with, things like that. 
It's interesting too, man. I was I was reading one of the interviews you you did on this, and you mentioned that you know in your own case, and this goes back to your own interest in the topic that. Your husband was the vice president uh, of your child's parent-teacher association at your school, right? And so even in situations where where fathers... So when there's yes. a pretty clear um, demonstration of of you know fathers husbands being actively involved, there's there's still this this tendency, which is curious. It is very curious indeed, and you can see I'm not the only one who has stories like that. You know, right. I, you see these all over social media and in the news sometimes as well. Yeah. So I guess the you know the question then is who should be more offended if the implication is fathers are less involved or don't know as much about their kids maybe that's a slight against against men but then the other side of it is that you know the fathers and husbands they're hardworking, they're very busy we can't bother them that that seems like a slight toward women i i think honestly i it's a little bit of a disconnect with where traditionally we've had we have this model traditionally of households where there's one person who specializes in inside the home production and one person who specializes in outside the home production. Yeah. But that model is no longer very prevalent, right? Um, and there's just this really hard norm, I think, for decision makers who interact with parents to still think that's how things go. And so actually, I think most households would prefer that not just one parent gets every call about a sick child or the dentist or the doctor, but rather that your school maybe would like call you half the time or maybe if one of you works part-time maybe that person gets slightly more calls but not all of them right well especially for households yeah where they're where they're trying to have some kind of uh, you know equal division of these responsibilities you know they're they're going up against these these outside forces i agree fully i think that um you know surveys so not we did our own survey of households and our our survey of households said that the women in these households said that they felt like they got caught it was called too much and that the men either said they thought that they got called too little or that they were pretty happy with the amount they were getting called but if you look at sort of national surveys that are even bigger than one we did men often report that they really want to be more equal partners in parenting so it feels like the system that these households interact with not just school but you know medical systems and sports and everything else that you do as a parent they're really biased against letting men become more equal partners. Really fascinating stuff. Well, we'll leave it there for now. Professor G, again, thanks for making some time for us here this afternoon. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much for your interest. Okay, there you go. That's uh, Laura G, Associate Professor of Economics at Tufts University, someone who focuses on labor market issues uh, and the co-author of this study. So kind of an overview of why they, they went about this, how they went about this, and what they found which is interesting. So what do we make of this? Is it, does it kind of match with your own experience here? A couple texts. This one says, I think the reason that mothers are called more often than fathers is because they're more organized. They know the schedule of events for the child. They tend to be more nurturing. If we're a sickness, I know my husband would have no clue what the kids' schedules are, so it would make more sense for the school to call me because I have it all in my head. I don't know. I mean, is that a, a more common... Um, situation it obviously isn't in that person's situation now someone else here says as a single dad i can say firsthand this is the case my child went missing and i still wasn't called by the school 100 percent bias in the school system uh, someone else here says that they track of the principal calling was a female or male there could be a caller bias also interesting point i, I don't think they did 
Uh, someone else here says, well, you know, phoning the mother stems back from the day when moms were at home and dads were at work. Right, so that's the thing. Is, is that what it is? Like, who should be feeling more slighted here? Moms or dads, men or women? Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time.